Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, and welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're joined by Joshua Gibbs. Joshua Gibbs is a teacher at Veritas School of Richmond, a lecturer on pedagogy and great books, and the author of How to Be Unlucky, Something They Will Not Forget. If this is your first time listening to us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a podcast where our CEO, Jeremy Tay, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on issues at the intersection of education and culture. We appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to Anchored at cltexam.com. Now, without any further ado, let's get on with the conversation. Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, today, we have a very, very exciting guest, uh, the one and only Joshua Gibbs, maybe the most well-known teacher uh, in the classical renewal movement. Uh, Joshua is at the Veritas School of Richmond. Uh, I would argue uh, the most influential classical Christian school in America. Uh, Josh, author, speaker, uh, love everything that you do and say. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, Jeremy. So you have a really unique, typically anchored podcast. We start off talking about the academic uh, formation uh, of our guests. What was your childhood education like? Um, yours is really unique because most people, myself included, we discovered the classical tradition kind of later on in life. We stumbled into it somehow and discovered this amazing, amazing treasure um, that was almost lost. Um, but you actually received a classical academic formation yourself. Um, what was that like? Tell us where you where you grew up and how you found yourself. Was it the Logos School that you were at in Idaho? That's right, Logos in Idaho. And I went to Logos from ninth grade through twelfth grade. My father retired from the military when I was about thirteen or fourteen, and he wanted to move back to the Northwest, which is where he grew up. He grew up in Montana, and we were homeschooling at the time, and we were looking for other options. And we heard Doug Wilson give a presentation at a local Presbyterian church on classical Christian education. And so we moved across the country. Um, this was back in 1995, I think. And I went to high school at Logos and graduated there. I was homeschooled for middle school and I went to uh, public schools during elementary school, though. Okay. And, and tell us about the Logos school and your time there. Uh, coming from a homeschool, were you prepared for it? Was it uh, kind of a continuation of what you'd already been doing at home or uh, was it substantially different? No, I would say it was pretty substantially different. Um, the So this is Logos back in the 90s, and it was a bit different than, than it is now. It's a very long-running school, of course. Um, and they've undergone some significant changes, I think, for the better since when I was there. Uh, for instance, in my first year at Logos, I wore jeans and a T-shirt to class every day. And that was back really before there was any sort of dress code. Um, and the, and the culture of the school was very different back then than it was now. I think it was a bit, I mean, it was a bit more loose. It was a bit, um, if you, and I, I say this not to disparage the school. I think any long-term teacher of the school will say the same thing. Uh, Logos has become more classical over the years, but, uh, I mean, nonetheless, I read, um, Aristotle's rhetoric and Homer and Virgil and Paradise Lost and, you know, all the all the big ticket classical books when I was there. And I learned a bit of Latin and logic and rhetoric. And I wrote a thesis. So 
Um, even though the school was very different back then, uh, I, I did get a classical education in, in high school. Yeah. So what, one of the books I've read that you wrote is uh, How to Be Unlucky. And uh, I love it. It was awesome. I, you have a great sense of humor and you're self-deprecating and funny in the book. Um, but you were not like this model student at the Logos School back in the 90s. Um, like, did Absolutely you... not. <laughs> were, were you a troublemaker there, Josh? Um, not as bad as some, but I was by no means a diligent student in high school. There was a few things that I liked to do. Um, I liked mock trial a whole lot. I liked knowledgeable, but I was a you know big de- devotee of popular culture, and I really liked school primarily because it gave me access to my friends. And uh, so I, I I do think uh, a number of my teachers from high school probably a bit shocked to see that I've gone on to become a teacher given, uh, given that I was pretty far from an ideal student. Yeah. And tell us about this transition um, from, I mean, cause clearly seeds were being planted, something beautiful and formative was happening. Yeah. Uh, even if you weren't maybe aware of it at the time, but what was that trans- transition like from maybe not super engaged student to super passionate teacher? Yeah. I would say that um, it's, uh, it's good that my teachers played the long game back in high school uh, mm. because a lot of the things that they said and did, I was not receptive to at the age of 16, but they stayed with me. I, I tucked them deep inside my memory. And I remember a lot of what my favorite teachers said and did and what their, what their work seemed to be back when I was in high school. Mm. And uh I don't know that I was much of a different college student than I was a high school student. I took 10 years to graduate college. I dropped out several times and uh, I I didn't graduate from college until I'd been teaching for almost two years. So um, that was a, uh, that was a a difficult time in my life. Well, just not a very pious time in my life, but I would say that it all began to change when I got married in 2006 and I married a very bookish, quiet sort of woman who had way better taste than I did. And, uh, and I think that the desire to read books and to live a more contemplative life was born out of marrying very well. And after I married a lot of, uh, a lot of what my teachers had taught me in high school began coming back to me. So, you know, for all those, all those teachers out there that have delinquent ne'er-do-well students, um, you, you might still think about the fact that the things that you're saying are, are getting into their heads, whether they're acting on them yet or not. That, that is hopefully very encouraging. We've got a, a lot of teachers who listen to the Anchor, Anchor podcast. Um, fantastic. Okay. And then the, the, tell us about your journey into the Veritas School, because the Veritas School, if you're, you're new to the Anchor podcast, um, mm. it really is, you know, it's a flagship school. It's kind of an anchor school. It's a school that a lot of folks, when they're looking to launch a new classical school, will go and they'll, they'll tour the Veritas School of Richmond to kind of crystallize a vision for what this kind of education can be. And it's a really amazing community. And I've been down there a number of times, but um, the buy-in, the enthusiasm from parents, I mean, people move from all over the country now to go to the Veritas School. Um, how, how did you discover it? And, and how long have you been there now? This is my eighth year at Veritas. And I... I think I discovered Keith Nix before I discovered Veritas. We were both at the same Alcu and Arate conference in Grand Rapids uh, nine years ago, maybe. Okay. And um, I was hunting for a new job and 
I gave a recitation of the Leaden Echo and the Golden Echo by Gerard Manley Hopkins, which you can mm. find online somewhere if anybody wants to track it down. Uh, but but Keith was impressed, and and we hung out for a for a couple evenings, and we both liked the same sorts of beer, so we had lots to talk about. And, uh, and a couple months later, I came down and taught a sample lesson. Uh, I think the sample lesson was on Paradise Lost, and um, and then I moved. Uh, my family and I moved up here the following year. And this is my this is my eighth year at the school. Okay, and what do you teach at Veritas? This year I teach sophomore literature. And this is really what I've taught for several years now. Um, it's early modernity. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's Paradise Lost, it's Hamlet, um, it's Jane Eyre, uh, Pride and Prejudice, Frankenstein, Rousseau, Burke. Mm. A lot of good 17th and 18th century stuff. Okay, fantastic. And then... Um, and then tell us, Josh, about your writing as well. I, again, if you haven't read it, you're listening to this, do order a copy um, of How to Be Unlucky. It is a great read. And you, you, do, uh, you, you do get into kind of a longer version of, of your, your upbringing, your, your academic formation growing up. Um, yeah. So tell us about your writing. And I believe there's a new project you're working on now, uh, a pamphlet that I'd love to hear about as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I blog for the Circe Institute. And um, I, have, I have a website, gibbsclassical.com. Um, where I teach a few classes and do some webinars. Um, and then I have a few, well, a few books that have come out over the last couple of years, a few books coming out over the next year. Uh, last, I guess it was uh, two Christmases ago, I, I put out an essay or a book of essays on the celebration of Christmas called the 25th. Mm. Uh, something they will not forget is my book about classroom catechisms, which is a couple of years old now. Um, and then the one you mentioned, How to Be Unlucky, is a memoir and sort of a commentary on the consolation of philosophy by Boethius. Um, and if and if anyone has to read everything I've written, you could get Blasphemers, <laughs> which is my short story collection that's available on uh, <laughs> on Amazon. But um, yeah, the next uh, so the next thing I have that I'm that's coming out and it'll come out next month. I'm really quite excited about. And it's a short pamphlet uh, of about 7,000 words, a little north of 7,000 words. Okay. And the pamphlet is entitled, So Your Parents Have Decided to Send You, or So Your Parents Are Thinking of Sending You to a Classical Christian School. Hmm. And the title is a bit of a mouthful. Um, but it's written directly to high school students, like age 13 or 14 and up, whose parents are examining classical education, taking the tour, reading some books, going through the pamphlet, uh, going through the, the various pamphlets and informational materials that are given to prospective parents. And it occurred to me over the last several months that the number of applications at classical schools is up. Mm. Uh, and yet there's nothing in those pamphlets for students. And about the age of 13 or 14, students really need to be a part of the admissions process. Mm. So, so your parents are thinking of sending you to a classical school is written directly to teenagers and describes what a classical Christian education is in terms that will make sense to them and will answer questions that they're more likely to have. Love that. I, I'm wondering if we can do this uh, and, and let me know, cause I just kind of had this thought on the spot right here. Um, mm. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I've gotten into audible and I knew if I made this mistake, I was going to stop reading or a whole lot of reading on my own. 
I'm currently doing the Gulag Archipelago by um, Schultenitzen and Ivan reads it, his son. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, having his son read it and uh, I, I actually retain way more. I feel like I can go deeper into it. Um, would you be willing to, to do a Josh Gibbs reading of this pamphlet that we could also push out on anchor and hopefully uh, students could hear you reading this out loud? Yes, that's a, that's an intriguing possibility. I like it. Okay, let's do that. And maybe we can release, you know, both of those together because that would be <laughs> fantastic. Do you feel like right now this is a conversation that you're having with students that maybe, you know, mom and dad were really excited to get them into the Veritas, maybe at some point along the line, didn't really have the conversation at length, or maybe just couldn't describe it or make the case for it. Yeah. But parents can be parents and put them where they want to be anyway. Uh, do you find yourself trying to kind of make a case for this kind of education to the students? On a regular basis, absolutely. And I think a lot of teachers are. Um, there's a certain sort of defensive posture that a lot of teachers at classical schools have to take once students get to high school simply because a classical education has never really been aptly, succinctly described for them. Hmm. Um, and so you have, uh, you have students that are worried about things and concerned about things and anxious over things that classical education has never had much concern for. Um, and, and you have parents uh, that are frustrated that the school's not doing um, certain things that public schools are doing or that other private schools are doing. And it's really because during the admissions process, a classical education was not described accurately enough. Mm. It was, uh, you know, the, the, the tour of the school was inviting and it all sounded great and they have sports teams and we read Homer. But um, so far as all the things that you have to give up in order to go to a classical school, mm. not just money, but a lot of what the world thinks of is glorious. A lot of that sacrifice is not really described up front. And so by the time students are hitting high school and they're starting to think about college and making it and getting ahead in the world, their teachers seem often strangely resistant to their desires for earthly glory. Mm. And parents and students alike feel like the rug has been ripped out from underneath them. And, and it's really because um, the admissions process was not rigorous enough. So I, I think I need to hear this even as a parent. You know, we, we moved our, our kiddos uh, over the past four or five years from public school arena to classical schools. Now my, my, the three middles are uh, at the D divine mercy Academy. Uh, amazing. They start off every day with the rosary and with mass and it's a deep dive into the great books, but I had the, the parental mindset of like, and they were arguing, they weren't happy about this move. Um, right. And my approach was more like you're eight or you're 10 and you don't know anything. <laughs> so you'll, you know, you'll, you'll learn, you know, and, and I've seen the fruit for sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful fruit already seeing in the lives of my, my children being in this, but yeah, I probably didn't make a very good case to them either is, um, is part of what you're trying to do here, make that case to parents and give them the kind of language they need to make a case for this. No, because the it's, I'm assuming that parents are going to hear about the contents of the pamphlet. Mm -hmm. But the pamphlet opens with, so why are you reading this? Your parents want you to read this. The school where your parents are applying for, it really is written directly to students. Um, now, I think that uh, the sort of conversation 
that the admissions office gets to have with a student who's read this pamphlet is a way more productive conversation that they can have without this pamphlet. Because the pamphlet describes the pamphlet describes some of the more difficult aspects of a classical Christian education. And I don't mean like trivium and quadrivium. Um, I mean that there's a long section on why uniforms are typical of a classical Christian school and what the importance of uniforms says about the limited value of self-expression and how a classical school is not chiefly concerned with students um, expressing themselves, but in students learning virtue, which may or may not involve students giving their opinions on every single thing that comes up. So I, I think that's a, it's a slightly more difficult thing to hear, um, you know, for students and for parents, oftentimes because parents conceive of, um, you know, a class on Homer as like a Homer book club where we all show up and hear and express our opinions on Homer, but a classical school is not the ancient books book club where everybody talks about what they think uh, uh, and expresses uh, off the cuff their feelings and impressions of a book. Um, classical books are taught with a great deal more authority than that uh, mm -hmm. at a classical school. And the authority of the book is what puts it in the curriculum. Um, so uh, it's, it's self-expression is fine, but it's not a priority at a classical Christian school. There are other priorities at classical schools. A classical school isn't like a social media platform where you go to perform yourself mm. and and get praise for it from your from mm -hmm. your peers. It's a place where you go to learn virtue and learn the life of God and learn good taste, which is just a bit different than performing. So I, I know this because I've met a few of your former students and um, you are, are dearly, dearly loved uh, as a teacher. And um, I, and I spent 10 years in the classroom before launching CLT. And um, I'm wondering, because there's a big difference between the a classical school that views parents as the first and primary educators of their own children and mainstream education, which I would argue absolutely does not view parents as the, the primary educators of their own children. Right. Um, how, how does that manifest itself uh, in your classroom? Is there, is there a point where a teacher-student relationship can be kind of too close and you want to cut it off? Sure. Um, I think that, uh, that I don't know that friendship is really possible between teachers and students while they're students. Mm. Uh, I think it's possible to, for a teacher and a student to lay the groundwork for a friendship that might form after graduation. Mm -hmm. um, but, but friendship needs to be based on a certain degree of equality that's shared. Um, authority makes for awkward friendships, uh, because we feel beholden, um, or subservient. And, and that, um, that means that there's something to be gained or lost in the relationship where a good friendship, um, is just about persons. So, I mean, this is why, uh, you, you can become friends with your parents, but really friendship with parents is, uh, I mean, like a child can become a boy can become friends with his father, but really only after the boys had obtain some kind of um, autonomy where he's not strictly obedient to his father in the same way before where his father's not going to punish him. And I think the same is true with a, with a teacher and a student. Like I want to tell my friends what I'm thinking and students might want to tell teachers what they're thinking, but there are limits to what a student can tell a teacher. I mean, just by law, like I let all of my students know 
um, you know, I want to talk about virtue and I want to talk about vice and temptation. But if you tell me that you're doing drugs, I'm going to tell your parents. <laughs> you can't you can't just unload whatever uh, information about your illegal activities you want on me and expect me to be quiet about it. Yeah. But that's not that's not really a friendship relationship right there. That's really more of a I mean, if I had a if I had a friend who was 45 and he told me he was doing drugs, I wouldn't call his parents. There's because there's some sort of quality there. Um, yeah. So I think that a good teacher is laying the groundwork for friendship with students. Um, if students want to come back after graduation, if they want the relationship with the teacher to carry on. Folks, this is a uh, very exciting. We have our first ever sponsor uh, of the Anchor podcast here, which is exciting. We would never promote something that we don't really, really believe in uh, here at the CLT. Uh, but our dear friends at the King's College in New York City, uh, they have an amazing summer academy. Uh, so amazing. My daughter, Grace Tate, she's going to be applying for it this summer. I love the King's College right there, uh, the tip of lower Manhattan, um, a faithfully Christian uh, college where they're doing uh, amazing formation of young people. Go and visit if you can. But there are three options here for summer academy. Uh, week one is going to be July 10th to the 15th. Uh, the focus there is going to be faith and finance. There's another track for American legal studies and another one, Christianity and the city. Uh, again, that is July 10th to the 15th in person in New York City. The next week two, uh, July 17th to 22nd is online. Uh, it's on New York City on film uh, and then another on investments and innovation in finance. And the third one, and this is one my daughter is applying to, uh, is July 24th to 29th. Again, in person, uh, the first option is going to be arts and culture reporting. The second is sports reporting, which is the one Grace is doing. Uh, and the last one is going to be speech and debate. I uh, can't recommend this highly enough. The King's College is a very, very popular option for CLT test takers. So please do check out the King's College and their summer academy. Now back to it. Love that. You may be uh, familiar with this already because you you read everything, uh, but I know Ben Merkel's wife, Rebecca, um, wrote a small book, maybe 100 pages actually, that yeah. called Classical You, Classical Me, or something like that. Yeah. And it is that the, the audience, it is designed for students uh, to read and to kind of make the case because the, the, the time is, is not entirely lost, but maybe partially lost if the student has the mindset of like, let me get through this. This is where my parents are going to have me. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, have you read Rebecca's book? And, and is, or is there a lot of overlap there? I haven't read it. Um, so I'm not, I'm familiar uh, loosely with the, with the thesis of the book, but I haven't, I haven't read the book entirely. Um, I know that uh, maybe this is cheating, but um, I've read a lot of Goodreads reviews of that book and it doesn't, I think a lot of the Goodreads reviews are from adults who mm. wanted to read it from the perspective of a child. Um, and uh, with the pamphlet that I've written, I really made this conscious effort to write something that was doable for mm. a 14-year-old boy. Okay. So yeah. um, I, like I, I put out early drafts of it, and I gave it to teachers, and I gave it to students, and mm. they read it, and they were all like, it's too long and it's too wordy. Hmm. So I scaled it yeah. back and they were like, it's still too long. And it's too dirty. <laughs> so, so I, I came at them with this, with this real, with this real question, like, will somebody who's 14 or 15 read this? And that was my, that was my real goal in this 
um, to, to write something that took maybe 45 minutes to read half hour, 45 minutes to read yeah. and, and which, um, and which was simple and straightforward enough that a 15 year old would get a sense of what a classical school was and mm. whether they were interested and whether they could make it at the school. So I wanted these, these three goals. By the time you're done reading this, you know, whether you, what a classical education is about, whether you want one and whether you can, whether you can hack it or not. So yeah. I think that, I think my goals for this pamphlet are fairly different than what Becca Murphy's okay. goals were. Okay. Yeah. And we may be about the same age. I just turned, I'll be 41 man, in a month. Uh, but I feel like when I was a teacher, I started teaching inner city, New York when I was 23 and I was teaching seniors who were like four or five years apart in age. And it was, it was very relational and in a way that probably wasn't great. I mean, we were just, we were too close to being peers almost in terms of age. Um, do you find that, that, you know, now that I guess you're into your, your, your forties, uh, that it's harder to relate or to enter into the mindset of a 14 year old? Um, hmm. No, I don't. And uh, I think that it requires effort to enter into that mindset. I think it requires real work. I think I might even go so far. This is not a word I like to use. I think that living an adult life that allows you to continue sympathizing with 14 year olds, it's really sort of a lifestyle choice uh, because it's, it's easy to forget what it's like for young people. And it doesn't matter what age you're talking about. Um, it's easy to forget what it used to be like. Um, like what's your, uh, Jeremy, what's the age of your youngest child right now? The youngest right now is four months, four months. Okay. So you're still in baby raising <laughs> range. Yeah. Um, I have noticed that people, once people no longer have an infant in the home, uh -huh. they completely forget what it's like to raise an infant. Like it, it goes out, it yeah. goes out of their mind. And, and what I mean is like you've got an infant and that infant has to get a nap at two 30 in the afternoon. Uh -huh. And your friend who doesn't have an infant says, come over to my house at two o'clock. We'll have a glass of wine. It'll be great. And you're like, well, but I have to get my child to sleep at two 30 or my whole day is going to fall apart. And your friend's like, <laughs> Oh, they'll be fine. We'll just put them down in the bedroom. They'll be able to sleep. And you're thinking, no, that's not how it works. Like my child has to go to sleep at two 30 in the crib or yeah. they're going to be miserable and I'm not going to sleep all night. And there's no amount of, um, uh, there's no amount of promises that things are going to be the same at your house. That's going to convince me to, to do this. But I, I noticed when I had kids, when I had very little kids, like infants, that these older people who had raised infants seem to have no appreciation <laughs> anymore. Like they'd totally forgotten what it was like to have an infant and they would treat having an infant, like a fairly easy thing to deal with. Um, <laughs> when in fact, an infant is, is, an infant's like a pagan God, like they're impossible to understand and they're demanding and they can't. Um, so, but all that to say, I think that it, I think it is possible to remember what it's like to be 14 or 15. And I, I think that I put in work on that front by being a very nostalgic person and continuing to watch movies that I loved at 14 and continuing to listen to music I loved when I was 14 so that I don't forget the emotions and sentiments and the poetic logic of the teenager. And, and I've made an effort to do this ever since I started teaching um, yeah. 
to, to put myself in the, the emotional frame of mind that I was in when I was the age of my students so that I can hear what I'm saying from their perspective. So you, you probably see both at the Veritas School of students that are, are fully bought in. Like yeah. they're, they're all about it. They're passionate. They're thrilled to be there. Um, we had one of them on the podcast name is, is slipping at the moment. Um, but then you also probably have some that are, yeah, mom and dad want me to be here. And so I'm here. Um, what, what is, what makes the difference? Why the, the students who are super dialed in and they've embraced, they've taken kind of radical ownership of this education. Right. How does that happen? I think it happens because they have parents that are super involved in their taste. And I think that taste, a, a big part of this is taste. Do parents still care about the taste of their children? Do parents want their children to like good books and to like good music and to like good films and good art and good clothes and good food? Or have they essentially let their kids choose all these things for themselves? Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that uh, so many parents, uh, by, the, by the time a child hits 14 or 15, they more or less let, let them listen to whatever they want, watch whatever they want, and even more so now, like wear whatever they want. And they've sort of given up on mm. caring about the sorts of things their children love. And they regard a classical education as a sort of gloss that covers over all the roughness of bad taste that's underneath it. Um, but I think that the students that are still, the students that are dialed in, as you say, uh, are students where parents are more likely refining and curating their children's tastes than mm. other houses. Josh, that, that is next level brilliant. Um, I think that you just hit the nail on the head with that. Um, well, th this is fantastic. We, we do want to have you, uh, if you're willing to do it, read it, read it out loud. We can kind of have the audible version of Josh Gibbs um, reading the 7,000 word pamphlet and, Hopefully that way we can get more uh, students kind of hearing this and uh, yeah. taking real ownership of that. So we'd love that. Um, Josh, what is a, a question we always end the Anchor podcast with? We always love to talk about books here. I, I loved, uh, it was my first real exposure to Boethius when I read um, How to Be Unlucky. What is the single text that you would say has been most formative on you that you come back to? Uh, would it be the Constellation of Philosophy, Boethius, or is there something else? Um, I would... Yeah, it seems, I guess I would say it's Boethius. Actually, this is going to sound, I'll, I'll change that answer. Actually, This is going to sound like a super Sunday school sort of answer. Um, but I really don't mean it that way. Uh, it's the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is the book that I keep coming back to. Um, my favorite book of the Bible. Um, one of the only books of the Bible that I find easy to believe. I love Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. I believe every word of it. Um, Ecclesiastes has been a, a great consolation to me in moments of, um, uh, you know, career setbacks, personal failure. Um, I know that I'm supposed to find the Gospels a consolation, but Ecclesiastes is a book I find easily consoles me. Meaningless, um, meaningless, meaningless. Is that an accurate translation of how it's it off? Uh, vapor. Everything is vaporous and uh, inconstant, I think, is the, mm. the translation I prefer. Wow. Again, we're here with Josh Gibbs, uh, who's a professor at the Veritas School in Richmond. Uh, there's a pamphlet that we're, we're hoping to push out with this as well. Uh, and again, order a copy of How to Be Unlucky. It is a really, really enjoyable read. 
Um, Josh, I love hearing you speak at the Circe conference and everywhere else. I know that you're, you're constantly on the speaking circuit uh, at all the classical events in the summer. Uh, so love the work that you're doing and, and really grateful for your time here today. Thank you very much for having me. It's great talking with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.